0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 5. Hello, and welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, and I am pleased to bring you another piece of my storytelling today. If you want to learn more about me, my fiction, my voice acting, or my audio production services, visit my website, chrislester.org. To learn more about Metamore City, my shared story universe, just go to metamorecity.com. That's M E T A M O R city.com. Now, here's your weekly writing report. I kept my writing chain unbroken this week, extending it to 12 days and counting. I wrote a total of 4806 words in 6.25 hours for an average of 769 words per hour, which is an increase over last week. I finished the Metamore City story to Walk in Shadow, which wrapped up at 27,206 words. I also started work on a new story called Flying Free. This story takes place in the Elysian Springs world setting created by Lauren Scribe Harris, and if all goes well, it will be appearing in a new anthology edited by Scribe sometime before the end of the year. I'll keep you posted with any new information about Elysian Springs as it becomes available. Now then, let's get to the story. Today I'm proud to read you Part 3A of To Walk in Shadow. Once again, Part 3 came in around 8,000 words, so I'm bringing you the first half today and the second half in next week's episode. To Walk in Shadow Part 3 The Price Jessup was alone when he awoke, but the warm space on the bed beside him said he hadn't been alone for long. Tara's scent lingered there as well, and he sprawled out on the bed dozily, still naked, his mind full of delicious memories of the previous night. He wondered at his own behavior, at the energy and confidence that had filled him as he and Tara enjoyed one another. Where had that come from? Back home, he was usually awkward around women, tripping over his own stupid tongue. Even at the hot tub, with Xiang, he had been consumed with anxious paranoia about being seduced. Only a few hours later, though, once Tara had overcome his hesitation, he had dived in without a second thought. What had changed? Well, for one thing, you just spent a few hours in a temple to freaking Prince Ball. The thought was a sobering one. Had Ball's food and wine been enchanted? Was there something in the air or in the water? Or was it something more fundamental? Priestess Mirai had warned him that Shadow could change people. Or maybe it was the fact that Ball's essence was at work in the temple, only a few dozen meters away from the bedroom. Could some part of that power have spilled over on Jessup without him noticing? Jessup didn't know, and, he realized suddenly, he didn't care. Last night had been wonderful, surprising, a moment of joy and delight in a dark place. He and Tara had hurt no one with their dalliance, and Jessup had not betrayed his oath to the Lightbringers or anyone else. Even if he never saw her again, he was glad they had seized that brief moment together. A knock came at the door, and Tara poked her head in. Hey, you awake? Jessup grinned and raised a hand in greeting. Hey, he said, his voice still slurred from sleep. I was just thinking about you. Tara beamed back at him. She came through the door with a stack of laundry, all of Jessup's clothes and gear cleaned and neatly folded. Yeah, she said, playfully. What you thinking about? She placed his stuff on the chair, bending at the waist to give him a view of her ass. Oh, this and that, he said, appreciating the view thoroughly. Mostly about having no regrets. Tara flashed him a look over her shoulder. Good. She pushed down her skirt, which had nothing beneath it, peeled off her top and hopped into bed on top of him. Because I'm ready for round two. Jessop laughed and kissed her. I think you mean round five. eh? whatever. time later, they lay together, happily spent, with Jessup propped up on the pillows and Tara resting her head on his chest. He traced his fingers lightly around the nipples of her small breasts. So, he asked, What's a girl like you doing in a place like this? Tara chuckled. A girl like me? Like me how? I don't know, you just seem so... Normal, Jessup said. I wasn't expecting that in one of Ball's disciples. What's your story? How'd you get here? Ah. Tara reached a hand up behind his head, ran her fingers through his mouse-brown hair. Well, you're right. I was a very normal girl in a very normal town, with a very normal family and a very normal school. Her voice dripped irony. I got a very normal degree in communications and a very normal boyfriend, and I settled in for a long, comfortable, and very normal life. Huh, Jossop said. So what happened? My very normal boyfriend had a very normal affair with a girl at his office, Tara said. Next thing I know, he's moving out and moving in with her. Her fingers tightened into a grip on the short hairs at the back of his neck. And I said, fuck normal. Jessup wrapped his arm around her in a hug. Damn, I'm sorry, Tara. No, no, it was a good thing. I mean, I did some stuff I probably wouldn't do again, but if I hadn't done them, then I'd never have gone to the party where I met him. And that was when everything changed. What did he say to you? I mean, I'm guessing Come to My Fortress out in the middle of an extra-dimensional wasteland probably wasn't in the sales pitch. No, it was not, Tara laughed. The first time we talked, it was all about freedom, being who you are without restraints, refusing to accept the little boxes that society puts you in. Later, it got more philosophical. Philosophical how? Well, look. Tara rolled over onto one shoulder so she could look him in the eye. Letting go of those boxes, those restraints, it's only the first step. Because when you strip away all of those things that society used to define you, you realize that you've lost most of your identity in the process. Because we're all playing parts. We're all filling roles. You can be as free as you want to be, but you can't stay there, being nothing to no one. If you don't choose your role, society's going to choose it for you. In the end, you're going to serve somebody. Okay, Jessup said. But why him? Why serve the Prince of Shadow? Because he's the one who told me the truth, Terra said. Everybody else who wants you to give them your freedom, they've all got a line of bullshit to sell you on the deal. Come work for us, it'll be a great career move for you. Or, oh, we're just public servants, you're not serving us, you're serving your country. Or, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. They all want you to swear your loyalty to them, to serve their needs above your own, but they try to hide it behind all these other things. She shrugged. Prince Baal told me straight up. Here's the contract, here's what I want from you, here's what I'm giving you in return. No spin, no bullshit. Gods, I can't tell you how refreshing that was. Jessup thought back to what Baal had told him at the meeting in the Citadel. Control someone by telling them lies, and you risk losing all when the truth is discovered. Control someone with the truth, particularly the truth of his own needs and desires, and nothing in the world can release him. Ball had seen what Terra needed, someone who wouldn't lie to her, someone who'd let her choose her life with her eyes wide open. Jessop hadn't realized how powerful that was until now. Does he ever tell you anything about his mission here? Jezeb asked, like what he's trying to accomplish in Shadow? A little, Terra said. I know that we're trying to win more control over Shadow. And the monsters, he calls them rebels, they're trying to stop us. I know that when we build new roads and walls and fortresses, it pushes the rebels back. Makes it harder for them to get past and slip into the real world. Is that something they're trying to do? Oh yeah, these deep shadow freaks have a mad-on for the real world. They hate anything that's alive and warm and happy. That's part of the reason we have the revels here. It's like waving garlic at a vampire. They can't stand being around it. Jessop looked up, imagining the solid walls of Castle Dauntless around them. So this is, what, some kind of first line of defense for the real world against shadow monsters? Yep, Tara said. She poked a finger into his bare chest. Just like you Lothanasi are the first line of defense against fairies and shit. We've basically got the same job, just on two different fronts. Ball, protector of the mortal world. The idea made Jessup's head spin. Just then, the door opened, revealing Jin. This morning, she wore a black bodysuit and a caster's belt, lined with small pockets for reagents. Her spellcasting dagger rode in a sheath at her hip, and she'd added a short sword, a dao or something similar, which rode in a scabbard over her left shoulder. She looked at the two naked lovers with apparent amusement, but not surprise. "'Time to get up, children,' she said. "'The master wants you in the war room in half an hour. "'Both of you.' Jessup and Tara exchanged surprised looks. "'I'm sorry, Lady Xiang,' Jessup said. "'I never meant to get Tara in trouble.' Xiang put out a hand to silence him. She has not violated her contract. There is nothing to punish. The master simply requires her presence at our war council. I am sure he will explain why in his own time. She turned to go, then looked back over her shoulder, adding, The baths are available for your use. I suggest you make yourselves presentable. Right away, milady, Tara said, blushing an adorable shade of red. "'Don't be late.' Siong left, shutting the door behind her. Jessup and Tara looked at each other again, then broke into a fit of embarrassed giggles. "'You think he knows?' Jessup asked. "'Oh, gods, yes,' Tara groaned. "'I think he knows everything that goes on in here.' "'Why do you think he wants you at the meeting? Did he brief you on why we're here?' Tara snorted. "'No. Come on, do you think I'm that important?' I change bed sheets and do laundry. Well, I guess we'll find out soon enough. Which way to the baths? Tara pulled a couple of towels out of a drawer in the wall. Come on, I'll take you there. She looked up at him, and her eyes twinkled. We can get clean faster if we lather each other up. Why do I get the feeling there's a flaw in that plan? Jessop asked, but then he pulled her into a deep kiss and went with her anyway. Thirty minutes later, they were clean, dressed, and seated in a large chamber with a raised platform at one end, and a long table set out on the floor below it. On the walls hung arcane illusion projectors, essentially large video screens that ran on mana instead of electricity. The displays currently showed an assortment of maps, still images, and live feeds from arcane wizard eyes in various locations around Shadow. Ball sat at the head of the long table directly in front of the steps leading up to the platform. Siong sat at his right hand, Captain Vargan at his left. Jessup and Tara took the two seats to the left of Vargan. No one else was present. After consulting the Scrying Stone, I have located the nearest path that comes out of Esterini, Ball said. At the moment, the entry point is about six hours' journey from here. Jessup raised his hand. Why, at the moment, he asked. Because the path lies beyond the walls of my domain, Ball said. Beyond those walls, space itself is fluid. The ways open and close, slide together and then apart. The path we scout today might be gone again when the Majestic sends her supply convoy. Jessup frowned. Is there a way to make the path more stable? There is, Baal said. He extended a coal-black hand to gesture to still image on one of the projectors, it was a broad, rounded mountain top, old and weathered, its slopes covered by a scree of broken rock. A low, black mist clung to the base of the mountain, obscuring the first twenty meters or so. "'This mountain has a strong mana node,' Bal said. "'Power is seeping into shadow here from the mortal realm, from a nexus that lies in the heart of Esterini. I suspect this power is what drew the mountain spirits to that land in the first place.' Jessup wasn't a mage, but he knew enough about magic to guess the next part of Baal's plan. "'You're going to do some kind of incantation on that mana node,' he said. "'Tie it back to your fortress here.' "'Exactly,' Baal said. "'If I can claim possession of that node, I can solidify the path and make it into one of my roads. It will remain stable for years, plenty of time for the Majestrics to send her people to Esterini. "'All right,' Jessop said.' What's the catch? Baal smiled thinly. This would be a significant expansion of my domain. The rebels of Deep Shadow will try to stop the ritual, and since I will be weaving the incantation, I will not be able to prevent them. You and Siong must hold them at bay until the casting is complete. Jessop looked over at Vargan. I don't suppose we can get some help with that. Vargan shrugged. That's up to the master. Unless he says otherwise, my duty is to defend this fortress. Baal considered. I think we can spare half a dozen men. Give me your best melee combatants, Vargan. No, wait. Not your best. You'll need them here when the rebels try to disrupt the binding from this end. Six competent combatants who are not afraid to die. Vargan nodded soberly. It shall be done, my lord. Baal turned his piercing blue eyes on Terra... My dear Tara, I will need your help to anchor the incantation. Are you willing? Jessop looked at Tara in surprise. He hadn't guessed that she knew anything about magic. He saw the fear in her eyes as Ball asked her, but she raised her chin, set her jaw, and nodded once. Yes, sire. Willing, ready, and able. Ball's eyes seemed to soften slightly, and Jessop saw what he thought might be a parental sort of pride. Very good, Bal said. Tara lowered her eyes and smiled at the praise, but Jessup could see the tension in her shoulders. He reached out for her hand. She gripped his and squeezed it hard. What's our next move? Jessup asked. How do we get to the mountain? There's a weak spot in the wards along my wall, Bal said. I need to repair it, but first we will make use of it to slip through to the other side. From there, we will be able to access the path. You'll likely face some resistance at that point, my lord, Vargan warned. The rebels have been testing that spot for a while. Ball smiled coldly, and his eyes literally flashed with light. Let them test me, he said. It took another hour or so to gather all of the supplies and soldiers they would need for the mission, Jessup, Tara, and Siong ate breakfast as they packed, a simple meal of apples, heavy bread, hard cheese, and water. They filled their packs with additional rations for the road, along with blankets, chemical glow lights, and several canteens. Siong also packed additional spellcasting reagents, a large pistol, and several magazines of ammunition. Vargen found Jessup some enchanted ammo that fit his own sidearm, and he added the magazines to the pockets of his uniform. Ball carried nothing, which Jessup supposed was sensible. If a situation arose where he needed to change into shadow form, as he had done on the way here, whatever he was carrying would be left behind. Ball's suit, apparently, was formed from his own essence, and thus immune to such considerations. When all was in readiness, they convened with their six escorts at the entrance to Castle Dauntless. Each of the soldiers carried a long black boar spear, along with a variety of other forms of weaponry. Captain Vargan bowed to them all and saluted Ball. "'Good hunting, my lord,' he said. "'And to you, Vargin,' Ball said gravely. "'When the rebels realize what I intend, they will throw everything they can at you to disrupt this anchor point. Stand firm until I return. We shall, master.' Baal led their company along a narrow road that ran beside the wall, in the direction that had been to their left when they first faced Castle Dauntless. Jessop had been thinking of that direction as north, though he knew the compass points were meaningless in shadow. After all, Esterini was to the east of Metamore, and the path to Esterini lay beyond the wall of Ball's Domain. Maintaining a sense of orientation may have been hopeless here, but it was one of the things they had trained into him when he became a light so he found himself trying to maintain the habit regardless. Jessop looked up at the wall as they walked. It looked even more imposing up close than it had from a distance, sleek stones of polished black, topped with spikes of cold wrought iron. There was magic in those stones, too, even stronger than the magic in Ball's roads. Jessop could feel it buzzing like an electric fence, just at the edge of human perception. It gave him a headache just being close to it. Tara came up alongside him, touching him lightly on the shoulder. You feel it too, don't you? She said. The wall? Yeah. I'll be glad when we put it behind us. Don't be too sure about that. Tara was trying to keep her tone light, but Jessup could hear the worry underneath. After a moment, she added, Can I ask you something? Sure. Why are we trying to build a road to Esterini? The master said something about a supply convoy. Why does the Majestrix want to send her people through shadow? Jessup looked around at the other members of their company. Ball was a good distance ahead, Xiong well behind, and the soldiers spread out between them were engaged in their own conversations. No one seemed to be paying them any mind. I'll tell you, Jessup said softly, but you have to promise to keep it to yourself, all right? Your master knows and Xiong knows, but we're trying to keep this quiet. I swear I won't tell anyone. Tara said, seriously. So Jessup told her. About Majora, about the Stafford's fever, about all the other ways they had tried and failed to send help to the Astari. That's horrible, Tara whispered. What will the Majestrix do if we can't get through? I don't know. She wouldn't use our military against a weak little country like Majora, even if the Senate authorized it. My guess is she'll probably push for some kind of sanctions to punish the Majora, Make sure they can't profit off whatever they got from taking Estorini. But that won't help the Astari. They'll be dead before Majora ever starts feeling the pinch. Gods, how many people are we talking about? How big is Estorini? <laughs> I was wondering that, too, Jessop said. I looked it up a couple of nights ago. They have a hard time taking a census there with all the mountains, but the best guess is a little over one million people. They both fell silent for several minutes. So, there's no way around it, Terra said. We have to succeed. It's the only way to save the Astari. Jessup smiled sadly. It is a pretty great motivator. I just hope motivation is enough. After a couple of hours, they came to the breach. It was not visible as a physical gap, but Jessup could sense the place where the magic had grown weak and brittle. There was no telling what had caused the weakness, at least not from this side of the wall. Baal put his hand to the stones and looked up, scanning the surface around the weak point. He muttered something under his breath in a language Jessup didn't know, and then pushed. His hand vanished into the black stones. The surface around him rippled like the surface of a pond. Straight ahead, children, Baal said. Don't stop to think or you may not be able to start again. Come, quickly. He stepped forward and vanished into the rock. Xiong gestured to Jessup. Go. I will take the Rio guard. Jessup looked at the black stone, still rippling eerily from Baal's passage. Then he took a deep breath, prayed he wasn't about to make a fool of himself, and ran forward. Darkness swallowed him. The wall did not feel like stone, but it did not feel like nothing, either. Jessup felt a resistance to his passage, a sort of pure repulsion, without texture, like trying to press two magnets together when they were facing the wrong way around. Jessup kept pushing forward, and though the force pushed back, he was able to muscle through it. Then he was through, and the darkness of the wall broke open, revealing another kind of darkness entirely. And I'm going to have to cliffhanger you there for this week, folks. Come back next time to hear what Jessup found on the wild side of Shadow. Now it's time for some feedback.
1: Hi, Chris. Rosa here. I'm a little bit confused about the role of Eli and what the people who follow his teachings believe. I guess it's the Aetasia and the Mariah. When Raven is talking... To Mariah he makes it sound like Mariah and the Ecclesia are all trying to say that like Eli is the creator, and I'm kind of confused because they know the old gods exist because Mariah brought them down to the earth. So there's definitely a disconnect to me. Is Ray just saying that Eli is not one of the gods or do the Ecclesia and Mariah believe that Eli is the only creator and the other gods are, like, not a thing, I, I'm just a little confused and would definitely appreciate some uh, explanations. Thanks,
0: Glenn. Good question, Sarah. And for those who were wondering, Sarah was listening to a story called A Lightbringer Carol when she sent in this message. You can find it in the past episodes section at metamorecity.com. Eli has always stood apart from the gods of the old pantheon. He doesn't take physical form. He tends to work quietly and indirectly, and he never involved himself in the political squabbles of the Aedra and Daedra lords. He seems to be a completely different sort of being, with a completely separate origin from the Pantheon. The Mariasts and Ecclesiasts believe that Eli created the universe, while the Universalists believe that Eli is a fragment of the essence of the original creator, who sacrificed its individuality in order to make the universe other religions believe in other creator deities, such as the Great Maker. These may be different names for the same being, or they may be different fragments of the original creator's essence. The fallen gods of the old pantheon never claimed to be the creators of the universe. As you heard in Part 1 of To Walk in Shadow, they have their own creators who they worship, a mysterious and alien group of beings known as the Elders, The Elders created the Aedra and Daedra, along with a group of older siblings known as the Titans, many thousands of years ago. Then the Elders left their children on their own, only returning occasionally to clean up the worst of their messes. The gods of the Pantheon don't know who created the universe, although like humans, some of them have beliefs on the matter. In any case, the Elders' children discovered the Earth in their travels among the world's, and they adopted the mortal races of earth as their pupils and servitors. The Ecclesia believes that was a terrible affront to Eli, so they want nothing to do with the fallen gods. The Moriists believe that Eli allowed them to find the earth, so that they could act as guardians and moral teachers for the mortal races, showing us light and darkness so that we would choose the path of good. When the Lords tried to use Mori to cast down the Daedra, Eli saw that they had strayed from their purpose and he instructed Morai to cast down all of the gods so they would learn humility. Many Moraiists choose to apprentice themselves to one or more of the old gods, hoping that if they learn more about that god's ethos, it will give them deeper insight into Eli and his creation. They do not consider this to be worshipping the gods, but the Ecclesiasts strongly disagree, and this is the source of much of the division between the two great churches.
1: Hello, Ethereus. This is Raj Chaos, long-time listener, first-time voicemailer. I have to say, I've been a fan of Meredith Morris City since the very beginning. I've listened to the entire catalogue at least twice, a few stories more than that. And Making the Cut was just a beautiful masterpiece of podcasting. But you know, you can't always have those crazy high production standards, and that's okay. I was a little disappointed. As you know, when things unseen stops abruptly, but life happens. It's okay. You get back to it eventually, I'll be happy. Right now, I'm just happy to be back in Metamore. It's really nice to be in that world, that space again. Thank you for all that you do in the podcasting realm. Beyond Just Metamore, all your voice work and all the other podcasts have been excellent. So keep doing what you're doing. You're great at it. Raven in the Writing Desk is a wonderful outlet and a great way to keep you uh, active on this. And I look forward to hearing future stories in Metamore and everywhere else. Keep it on the bright side.
0: Thanks, Raj. Things Unseen will be produced in audiobook eventually. At this point, it's a question of when we can get the resources together to make it happen. In the meantime, you can get a copy in ebook at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Smashwords.com, and a lot of other online outlets. You can also order a hard copy at Amazon. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you'd like to leave feedback, you can email it in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. If you want to leave a voicemail, call 641-715-3900 and enter extension 255-255. 082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Twitter as ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, and my blog is at chrislester.org. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. This is Chris Lester, signing out. This podcast and its contents are copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press, The show is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.